Last time on SHOT. When someone dies, or is about to die, it's pretty fucking crazy how selfish everyone gets. But my mom sat back, and she told me to never allow certain people at her funeral. She didn't even have to name names for me to know who was on that list. What any millennial would do. I made a Facebook status. I wrote a very vague report of the incident. Didn't say shooting. Didn't say brother. Didn't say ex. Didn't say gun. Laundry finished, and for some reason, the detergent hadn't washed out of some of the clothes. They were mostly my mom's infamous white t-shirts that she wore almost every day, so a bunch of her shirts were stained with blue detergent. I broke down for the first time. My dad hugged me so tight in that moment, though. He knew what my mom meant to me. My mom still meant a lot to him. And then I finished her obituary. I wrote it the way I thought she would want to be portrayed. They were not going to come in when we were our most vulnerable and try to act like our past was nothing. That they could suddenly be there for us now when we needed them before. That somehow they could see through my sexuality and my mom's struggles now, but couldn't before. Sure, she was dying. You could never see her again. But you don't get to do that. You don't get to capitalize on death. I had everything planned and ready to go when the time came to say goodbye. I had thought about everything this death was going to bring. It's really hard for me to mark the exact date I came out of the closet, because it was a process. It's still a process. A process that will continue my entire life. A process not that different from what we all have to do when we meet someone new. Think about when you start a new job, or move to a new city. You start to meet people and tell them about who you are. The conversations start out small, about your family and your hobbies. You might reveal something like a food allergy or a political position you have. And then, eventually, the small talk will transition into something regarding your sexual preference. It might start out with a simple ask about whether or not you are married or dating someone. Or someone might ask if you think someone else is cute. At some point, your sexuality will be questioned, right? I think it's pretty inevitable. Sex and relationships make great conversation, so it's difficult to be social and refrain from those details. Now, being confident in my sexuality, I have no problem revealing. But the point is that coming out is not a singular event. The world is heteronormative meaning the assumption is that everyone is heterosexual until proven otherwise. And as long as heteronormativity exists, I will have to continually come out to groups and individuals to assert that my sexuality is valid and realign expectations that all people aren't straight. The first person I told I was gay was myself. That's easy, and it happened in middle school. The second was a friend, in her basement. That was junior year of high school. I remember when I told my mom, when I told the girl I was dating, when I told my best friends, when I told Facebook, and then after that it just kind of gets all jumbled up. And what's also important to realize is that every day my sexuality changes. It's fluid. I think everyone's is, whether they realize it or not. I think every day my mind and body are experiencing new feelings and people and ideas 
and things that influence each other and the way I see myself and others. These changes might not be as grand as whether or not you like men or women, but subtly your attraction to others is affected. A few years ago, I came out as queer instead of gay. Queer is a term that used to be very offensive to the LGBTQ community because it was used as a derogatory term. Queer was reappropriated by the LGBTQ community to label individuals who feel like they don't fit into any true definition. So for instance, I realized that gay by our standards means being attracted to the same sex. Well, I found myself being not only attracted to certain women, but also trans individuals and queer individuals who may not identify as male. So my sexuality was no longer encompassed by gay, and bisexual didn't feel right either. So I chose queer, which meant I could define myself. Individuals also label themselves as genderqueer when none of the genders feel adequate to them. So queer doesn't have a clear definition because queer is whatever the person wants it to mean. It's free of boundaries and limits, which is how I see my sexuality and even my gender identity evolving day after day. I feel much more comfortable in this label. Now, I can say queer. My friends who know me say queer because they know the complexity of the word. But queer can be used as a derogatory word still. For instance, my grandma that I brought up before recently posted a status about how all the queers and colored people need to be rounded up and shift off to war to fight and die for our country instead of quote-unquote normal people. In this case, queer was used to belittle individuals who identify as LGBTQ. The difference is pretty clear. Now, I get comments like this a lot. Why are you always bringing up your sexuality? Why are you always putting it in our faces? I don't care about how you identify, so shut up about it. What people don't understand is that when you exist outside of the norm, the norm here being male, white, straight, or cisgender, which means you believe you were born in the body that matches your gender identity. It means you're not transgender. When you exist inside this norm, you don't see how my queerness affects everything that I do and how I have to be conscious of my queerness at every turn. Same goes for being a woman, which I could never grasp. Women have to be conscious of their womanhood with everything that they do to stay safe. Even just walking home, with what they wear, how they talk, because a man might take it as an invitation for violence. Because like they say, guns don't kill people, people kill people. To which I say back, yeah, people kill people with guns, fueled by lots and lots of hate. shot by her teenage son in an Evansville parking lot. It happened during the Black Friday rush. Craven was shot in the back and was taken to a local hospital for treatment. The family released a statement to us saying she raised five kids as a single parent, so she's very strong. There are four basic rules of gun safety that we talk about. And if you follow these rules, you're not going to have an accident. For every criminal killed in self-defense, 32 innocent people died, 78 guns were used in suicides, and two accidental deaths occurred. But if you don't do what's the right thing, you're not going to have 
either you're not going to have a Second Amendment, you're not going to have much of it left, and you're not going to be able to protect yourselves, which you need. Welcome to SHOT, a new podcast featuring intimate true stories of accidental shootings and their aftermath. This first season is called The Night My Brother Shot My Mom with My Ex-Boyfriend's Gun. Last episode, I focused in on death and the preparation I went to to plan for my mom's passing. I left you saying we had 12 hours left until her next surgery, but I also left you looking into my ex's eyes. This is our focus today. I'm going to take you through our complicated relationship during the shooting and discuss how my sexuality as a queer man plays into every part of this story in unexpected ways. I'm also going to be revealing something today I've never said publicly. This is The Gay Thing. Once I turned 21, my mom would always want to go out with me when we had the time. Either for New Year's or Thanksgiving or my college graduation, she would want us to all go out together and bond. I went out with my friends to bars about two to three times a week in New York and now in LA. But something my mom never grasped was how uncomfortable it was for me to go out anywhere in the Midwest, minus a few gay bars in Indy and Nashville. Going out was one thing, but getting completely wasted was just not going to happen when I came home. For a queer person, going out in these less progressive areas is an immediate threat to safety. Other people are drinking, their true colors are coming out. They become more irritable and brave when it comes to saying what's on their mind. Their inner homophobia kicks in. And a gay boy has to be careful in these moments. I'm not particularly big or muscled, so I'm more than likely going to lose in a straight up physical fight. So avoiding confrontation is key. But I'm also not about to hide who I am for anyone. So when going out, I have to be conscious of not getting too drunk or too high and constantly being aware of my surroundings. Did I look at someone wrong? Did I brush up against someone in the wrong way? This isn't a fun going out experience. I'm very out. I really don't know if someone would know I'm not straight by looking at me or hearing me talk if you go by, you know, stereotypes. But for instance, the night before my mom was shot, we went out with me and my friends. We ended up in a bar late at night. I was not drunk, but tipsy, and talking to my friends outside. A guy approached, and started to calmly talk to us about normal shit, like what we do. I told him I was a filmmaker, and he asked how much money I made. I told him I didn't do it for money. He told me he made more than me. Again, I told him I didn't mind because I do what I love. Spoiler alert, I bet I actually did make more money, but you know. And at some point I said, well dude, someone's got to make the porn you jerk off to. I thought it was funny. What I had done instead was link sex into the conversation. He could pick up that I was gay or knew regardless and connected the two. So the output of that equation was that I was coming on to him. He tried to start a fight. And with the one weapon I do have, my words, I was able to talk him down and get out of the situation. I had a similar experience like this in Nashville when I dressed up in heels for a costume. 
and in high school when I went with my boyfriend at the time to a party and was violently thrown across the room for looking at someone wrong. When this is how you grow up, and these are the environments you find yourself in, you have to be aware of your queerness at all times just to maintain your safety. It's either that or just not go out. The real simple solution is let us queers exist around you without fear. Otherwise, we are just going to keep being loud and proud because the moment we are quiet, that's when I get a black eye. Or even worse, I get shot. We do want to update you on the breaking news out of Orlando, the terror attack on a gay nightclub. Right now, at least 20 are dead, maybe more. The shooter also dead. Police say that he was well prepared. He was organized. They do not believe that he was from the area. More than 40 have been taken to a local hospital. Terrified witnesses describing the horror of hearing the gunshots, seeing people injured during the chaos. Let's listen now to what they've been telling us this morning. My son was in there with his boyfriend and two other guys. They heard about 20 shots. Oh my God, dude. That went bam, 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 bam. People screaming and falling. Everybody was running. I got a text message from my daughter and my two nieces. Please come and get us. Please come get us out because he's about to kill us. Nobody knew what to do. He was like, I don't want to look up because he's, you know, if I look up, he might shoot me. There was bodies everywhere, and I was crawling. I just kept crawling. I don't know if he was left in the club, if he got shot, or if he's being worked on here. I don't know. In the parking lot, they were tagging him red, yellow, so that they know who to help first and who not to help first. He said he was going to die, and he loved me. That's the last thing I heard. It's terrible. He's my only child. My son got shot three times. Oh, so much heartbreak and anguish from those families. The Pulse nightclub shooting this year goes to show that even in our own safe spaces, LGBTQ people can fall victim. Because while I'm strong and confident in who I am, hate can make some people hate themselves so much for who they are that they actually enact violence against their own people. These are just some of the realities my community faces. Maybe I'll start a new podcast so we can fit in the rest. But while my mom may not have understood why I wouldn't get drunk with her in Southern Indiana bars, she never once questioned the validity of my sexuality. When I told her I was gay, she was smoking near our fireplace, trying to blow smoke up the chimney so that it wouldn't go back down into the house. I always told her that didn't work. We had gotten in a fight about something, and she asked me why I only had friends that were girls. And I told her maybe it was because I was gay. She embraced me and told me that she would always be there for me. She told me that her mom had gay friends growing up. My mom had always had an open mind, but regardless, she still had questions. I remember her asking me what the word faggot meant. Not in a way to be mean, but she just genuinely wanted to know. I was happy to inform her. My mom was divorced from Greg by the time I came out, so I didn't have to come out to him. My mom always joked that if she didn't divorce him when she did, she would have had to when I came out because he would not have been okay with it. I agree. 
Greg has used the terms queer and faggot to describe me several times. Great parenting, by the way. When Jack came into my life, my mom fell in love with him as much as I did. He was a smoker as well, so they bonded over that and made the house smell even worse, pretending to blow it up the chimney. Jack would change my mom's oil, talk shit about me with her, which was probably her favorite activity, and he would bond with all the kids. I remember one time when the kids didn't know that Jack and I were dating, and we were hugging and goofing around. My youngest brother, Stephen, yelled, best friend fight, thinking we were fighting, but we were really just showing affection. Eventually the kids knew and welcomed Jack as one of the family. Jack became one of my mom's closest friends. Their birthdays are only a day apart, so we'd celebrate them together. And as I stated in a previous episode, he was there for my mom in her darkest days. I couldn't have asked for a better boyfriend. So as Jack and I held my mom's hand 12 hours before her next surgery, I looked deep into his eyes and saw his despair. Before that night, we had been through some rough patches. Soon after we broke up my sophomore year of college, I tried to win him back, and he eventually agreed. We dated for about six more months after that, and then I met a guy I was super interested in. This guy lived in New York. Jack did not. This guy was finishing his master's. Jack was just going back to school after Afghanistan. And this new guy was just exciting and new. I broke things off with Jack, and this new guy would send me into a deep depression for almost a year. Soon after I broke up with Jack, this guy who promised me a healthy relationship full of love and support turned against me. He would promise me dates and adventures and then fail to show up, would make me say I loved him and wanted to marry him, and then refused to reply to my texts. He would threaten to kill himself late at night so that I'd wake up and alert people and then tell me I was overreacting. He'd show up at my door drunk, wanting sex, but leave irate that I wouldn't put out. He spiraled my mental health to its lowest. It took me almost a year to get out of it. I had ended things with Jack and pushed away one of my best friends for a monster. Jack and I didn't talk for a long time. And while I was with this other guy, I found out Jack had signed up for another tour in Afghanistan. He said it wasn't because of our relationship ending, but I kind of felt like it was. I had promised him a life together, and a plan, and then destroyed it. Really, the night of the shooting was one of the first times I had seen him since he got back from his second tour. We had made amends at some point, and he had started to date other people. So with his hand locked in mine again, I had all these emotions run back to me. He was truly the only man I had loved since coming out almost six years ago. With 12 hours of time to kill, whoops, I probably shouldn't say that, loved ones headed back home to recoup. Jack's dad lived in Evansville, about 15 minutes away from the hospital, so Jack and I made our way to his house to shower and refresh, while Aunt Kelly stayed at the hospital with my mom. I checked in with my roommate Michelle, who was taking care of things back at the house. All was in place for the night. I held Jack's hand as he drove us to his father's house. I said, 
I guess we gotta get married now that your gun shot my mom. And he said, yeah, I guess. He was seeing someone at the time, but very casually. So casually, in fact, that I'm pretty sure this guy never even knew about what happened. Jack just said he was with family for the holidays. I had been in his car so many times. It had heated seats, and that along with his tight grip and comforting presence made me feel so warm. We got to his dad's, showered, and put on pajamas. I laid down on the guest bed and started to drift off. He joined me and we kissed each other as we held each other tight. He smelled and tasted like I remembered. I could feel my stomach start to cramp as he gripped around my stomach. I hadn't eaten anything in 24 hours. I was starting to notice it for the first time. I still wasn't hungry, but having low blood sugar, I could tell I wasn't in a good place. We left and headed back to the hospital. McDonald's, Panera Bread, KFC. Nothing sounded good. Jack made the suggestion of Fazoli's. No, I thought. He said pasta was something I liked and could easily eat. Well, maybe I could do that. I got a chicken carbonara and ate half of it. He knew me too well. I held his hand again and we headed back. There was other hand-holding going on that night, too. Aunt Kelly, who stayed with my mom while Jack and I went to freshen up, continued to make contact with my mom via the alphabet board and hand signals. When Jack and I returned, Kelly had her hand tightly gripped around my mom's hand, trying to get her to communicate. She squeezed it hard, putting all of her love and strength into my mom before her surgery. My mom pointed to letters, but about one to two words in, she would lose strength and not be able to finish the sentence. We understood. She was thirsty. She was hungry. She was scared. Nervous. But she did get one clear, complete message out. Tell Kevin I love him. She didn't say it to anyone else but Kevin. She wanted to make sure that when she died, Kevin knew that she forgave him. She didn't want him to continue the rest of his life thinking she blamed him or hated him for what he had done. That message of love to Kevin was the last message she'd get out before the nurse made her go to sleep to prepare for surgery the next morning. There was something I debated about telling her in this moment, something I had told very few people and had struggled to figure out how to tell my mom. Something I'll share with you now for the first time. I believe there is a happy mix of nature and nurture with sexuality. I believe I was born this way, but I also believe my sexuality is shaped every single day, as I mentioned before. I think I was born to be attracted to men, my earliest memory is in first grade when I met one of my best friends at the time, who was a boy. I remember feeling like I wanted to be with him all the time. Not in a sexual way, but in an emotional way, with slight hints of attraction. I remember playing with his ears when they were cold. 
I remember my attraction being rooted in something much more deeper and fundamental. The year before, in kindergarten, I remember kissing two boys in the bathroom, but I don't remember being attracted to them. It was playful kid stuff that most kids do, and if you think otherwise, you probably don't pay enough attention to your kids. My girlfriends talk to me all the time about when they first started to touch themselves, not even with the objective of pleasure, but just because they rubbed up against something or felt something in the shower. And the age at which that starts happening surprised even me. Anyways, what I'm getting at is that my sexual attraction was more than just sex, and started around age 5 or 6. Maybe even earlier, and I don't remember. So when I tell you at age 7, I was molested. I want to be clear about how I believe it informed my sexuality, but did not dramatically change it. But yes, when I was 7 years old, I was molested. I got locked in a room alone with the person. I remember feeling excited because I was getting individual attention from someone I admired and looked up to. He told me to go lock the door, and I did. We sat down and played video games, nothing out of the ordinary. Then he made me touch him. He touched me. He kissed me. Nothing hurt. Nothing gave me pain. It was very gentle and sensual. It ended and I left the room. For the next year, I thought about it every minute. When the phone rang and my mom picked up, I thought it was the police calling me to take me to jail. I thought I had done something wrong and would have to face the consequences. At some point that fear faded and I realized I was in the right that something wrong had happened to me. Maybe it was the fact that I didn't feel any pain at the time that I kept quiet. I wasn't forced or choked or tied up. Maybe because I was gay and had felt attraction to my friend a few years earlier that it felt more normal to me than say a woman forcing herself on me. I can't wrap my head around it. A few years later, when I was 12, I learned that he was caught doing this to another child. It made me want to keep quiet even more. That same year is when I had my first consensual experience with a guy friend of mine. Nothing heavy, just kissing and rubbing. And then I turned 13, and I went to middle school, and I suppressed it all because guys were starting to seriously date girls. I dated girls from 13. The whole time I would come home and masturbate to guys. I used to have a lot of scary movies because I collected them, and horror movies from the 80s did a good job of showing male butts, so that was my go-to. Around 17 is when I actually had sex for the first time with another guy, and the rest is history. I am being candid with you in this moment because I feel like it's really the only way to grasp the conclusion I'm about to make.
My junior year of college, I was tasked to make a film about something personal. I thought about a lot of topics. You can guess a few just listening to this podcast. But I landed on my molestation. I hadn't told anyone at this point, and it felt like something I needed to confront and deal with. That film is online, and it's pretty terrible. It was one of my first films, and I didn't have any kind of budget, and the sound was awful. But at the end of the day, the story is pretty decent. It's about a guy, aka me, that finds out the person who molested him is going to trial for molesting another kid, and the guy struggles over the course of a night going out, whether or not to be open and to tell his mother about this, so that he can be a witness at the trial. The whole point of the film was for me to build up enough confidence to tell my own mother. I thought by just putting out the film she would inquire, but she never did. Others noticed and reached out. I told my friends about what happened, and I'll tell you what I told them. I reached the conclusion that I wasn't going to come forward and reveal the name of the person or press charges. Did I believe that what he did was wrong? Yes. I might have had a slightly different perspective if he had never gotten caught with someone else. I think I would have been consumed by guilt thinking he was doing this to other kids who might have had a way more violent experience than I did. But he was caught and tried and convicted. I'm not going to name him in this podcast either. And please don't try to assume. It's no one close to me or anyone that I've named in this podcast. It's no one you will guess. So please, don't throw around accusations. This is between me and him, and it will be forever. That is the conclusion that I've made. How I do believe I was affected most by the incident is that I think it informed the type of man I'm attracted to. I tend to be attracted to features he carried, I can't say for sure, but I feel like in some way my sexual attraction was influenced by this incident, just like I believe watching male butts affected my attraction toward butts. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an expert on hardly anything, but I know that I am comfortable with where I am in my relationship to this part of my life, and I continue to be an outspoken advocate for the way we criminalize pedophiles. I have been vocal on Facebook and other outlets that the way we treat pedophiles is wrong. We demonize and subject them to humiliation. While I understand the extreme hatred for someone that touches an innocent child, these actions do not prevent sexual assault on children. The more we demonize, the more pedophiles dig deeper into hiding and commit more crimes that we don't even know about. Now, the solution is not to welcome these actions, but to welcome them as people for rehabilitation. I myself am not attracted to children, but my attraction to men was demonized for centuries in this country and continues to be in many ways. Mike Pence supports conversion therapy, which seeks to change someone's sexuality. I understand what it feels like as a kid to be told that who you are attracted to is wrong. It doesn't make those feelings go away. It makes you dive deeper into depression and explore your sexuality in quiet 
obviously the big difference here is that I'm attracted to men who are at a legal age of consent. Children have a very different relationship with consent. But it is my belief that if we show pedophiles that we understand their attraction is beyond their control, then we can work with them to find ways to detour their actions away from children and manifest these attractions in legal and appropriate ways. That is how we protect our children. We take the threat and we treat it. We don't make it go into hiding where we can't see it anymore. This goes for a lot of criminalized topics. If we treat people as people, we can figure out how best to deal with what is wrong with them. If we treat people as demons, their actions will not be cured. They will inevitably strike again. And then who is to blame? Us or them? As I sat there, seeing my mom close her eyes, I thought about telling her what I just laid out to you. But I didn't. And she slipped away into the night until her surgery the next morning. With my mom asleep, Jack and I took a few blankets and cushions and made a bed next to my mom. I held her hand and wrapped my other around him. The nurse popped in one last time and looked at Jack and I, wrapped in each other. I could tell she was weirded out. Oh well. All three of us were comfortable and happy. The weirded out vibe the nurse exuded is something I've become used to in Indiana, especially now that Trump has given so many people permission to let their own homophobia out of the closet. I think I've heard way more derogatory comments now than I did in high school. When I was a freshman in college, my friend Sarah Barry, who you've heard from, and I started an activist group in my hometown called Raise Up. A few months prior, our high school had prevented us from starting a gay-straight alliance in the school by scaring off any faculty members that wanted to support us. So Sarah and I went out of the school to get community support. We hosted screenings, provided information, fought against anti-LGBTQ legislation, and even walked in our town's big parade and handed out pro-LGBTQ material. All this activism forced the school to allow the GSA once we made the problems we were having public. Through that entire experience, Sarah and I were called many things. And there were accusations that the GSA would burn Bibles and force kids into homosexuality. Five years later, the GSA is a big presence at Jasper High School and one of the only GSAs in the area. Funny enough, most of those who participate are straight allies. And there were never any Bible burnings that I know of. My point here is that five years ago, people tried to stop progress by claiming we weren't ready for it, that it would cause so many issues. And five years later, nothing but positivity has come from the GSA as it helps students who need it to find a safe space to be themselves. But also five years later, I hear people making the same claims about how extending rights to LGBTQ people will cause problems. Those same people support Trump and Pence. 
I was recently home in my move from New York to Los Angeles, and a local TV station did a story about me. I brought up my queer identity, my queer activism, and my queer art. Nothing about my queerness was put into the broadcast interview. The people who I worked with told me that it was all cut by the powers above because they didn't want to deal with any controversy. That same day, I found out that my latest short film, which tells the story of two gay men, was not accepted into our town's film festival because of its content. In an email chain with the organizers, I asked for an explanation, and they said that they literally weren't ready to deal with the controversy. A month later, I screened my film independently in my hometown, and another publication did a story on me where they included exactly word for word what I said about my queer art. And guess what? Nothing happened. A bunch of kids didn't suddenly get the idea to be gay. Bibles didn't implode. People continued to live their lives, and so did I, happily and openly. This irrational fear we have for new perspectives prevents us from coming together, which is a message Donald Trump and his supporters keep promoting. Coming together does not mean that I get to exist, but that you get to erase my queerness in doing so. I don't only get to exist within your ideal world if I don't talk about who I am and who I love. If we really want to come together, we must accept every part of every person. In the waiting room the next morning, Jack, Brittany, Kelly, and I sat there with an older man and an older woman. Jack and I held hands. I expected to be frowned upon or looked down at. Luckily, my anxiety had me all over the place, so I barely stayed in the waiting room as I paced around the hospital. A huge monitor showed the progress of the surgery. This monitor was a fucking nightmare. For one, it wouldn't update regularly so we had no idea of time. It would sometimes update every 15 minutes, other times 45 minutes, and the progress was ambiguous. I couldn't tell if they had started surgery or not. They told us to expect about two to three hours. But after a few hours, the woman came to me and asked if my boyfriend and I were okay. I said we were getting by and thanked her for her concern. My boyfriend? I didn't know if I'd call Jack and I that again. But I could feel her unconditional love, a love reminiscent of my mother that I couldn't be with at the moment. I looked at Jack. I loved him. But what I would later figure out is that my heart needed him at that moment, but not in the capacity that I thought. We had worked so hard to be together in the past, and I think in this moment, we found that we could support each other as friends. That's where we are today, really amazing friends, with a love so unique that a relationship would just fuck it up. 
do I think about what our life would be like together? All the time. But like sexuality, the definition of relationships are also fluid. Who might seem like your ideal partner one minute might turn out to be better suited as a friend the next. I think through this shooting, Jack and I found a balance we could finally maintain, and I wasn't willing to risk that for anything else. If I pushed for more, I could stand losing his friendship forever. He's now married and happy. I'm single and happy. If I'm grateful for anything with this, it's that we found each other again, this time in the right way. I wandered away from the waiting room and found myself at the hospital's chapel. I hadn't prayed since my first grade religion class. I was now agnostic. But I felt I had no control. I was putting all my hope into a monitor that wasn't even operating correctly. Into a nurse who could only provide basic updates like they're still working. So I went into the chapel. I sat down and closed my eyes. And I prayed to a God I hadn't spoken to in over a decade. I prayed for my mom to make it through. And when I opened my eyes, I heard commotion. I went into the waiting room and found the surgeon speaking to Kelly and Jack. Both were in tears. Both stood up to hug me. Both told me that she had made it through. I looked up and I thought to myself, Jesus fucking Christ. Shot is written and produced by me, Tommy Craven, with editorial help once again from Sarah Berry. Music is provided by Summer Underground. Their latest album, More Than a Friend, Less Than a Lever, is currently available on Spotify and iTunes. Their song, Lever Where Are You, is our theme music for season one. Check them out. Additional music this week was provided by Liza St. John from the St. John Sisters. Filmmaking friends of mine who are currently releasing their newest short film, Cargo. See the trailer at cargoshortfilm.com. Don't forget to go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast so we can get noticed in the charts. If there's one thing I love, it's validation. But really, please share with everyone you know. We are getting into some important topics I think we can all stand to talk about. The next episode is titled Religion and Other Themes and will be available next week.